this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. So, brother, how's, how's things been going for you? Things are good. Um, things are personally good and professionally good with me. And things are awful in the world, uh, which seems the theme every week. Yeah. Um, our show has more and more material the worse the planet gets. And so, uh, wow, what a week. Um, between the travel ban and uh, the immigration stuff, uh, it's, it's really, it's been, it's been absolutely wild. I, I can't even believe this is America now. I, I, sometimes I wonder if I woke up from a dream in some sort of fantasy land, except it's an awful fantasy land. Yeah, no shit. You had some interesting professional news uh, this week, uh, which, is, which was great. So what, just two weeks ago, you had your first article published on moral injury at antiwar.com, which you all should check out. And then and this week, you were, spo- you were talking on uh, Fault Lines, which is a D.C.-based uh, AM and FM recording uh, radio show. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about you know, what the topic was and what, your, what it felt like to do your first radio interview? Oh sure, yeah. The, the the interview itself didn't it, it didn't didn't seem too bad at all. You know, uh, I d- immediately got the feeling that I was kind of fitting the that the hosts were trying to fit me into both their narratives, which was amusing and 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 funny to watch. Um, we talked about uh, whistleblowers and specifically about uh, Reality Winner. This came on uh, that she had just made her put in her guilty plea. Of course, the information about her. Her sentencing hadn't hadn't come out then yet. Um, it, it, it's an interesting dynamic the way that the conversation moves on radio because they're you know it, it's not it's not nearly as dense as what you and I talk about. It's a little more down to earth. But how to fit all your information in there is kind of you know it, it, up to you and how the interviewers are doing it. You know. Yeah, they really do drive the uh, the tempo on radio, especially if the segment is 15, 20, 30 minutes, which is usually the max you're going to get. Um, podcast format allows for such a deeper dive, yeah. but, uh, but radio reaches a different kind of audience, and uh, there's something to be said for it, so you should be proud. And uh, the more me and you can get on radio, I think the better off we are. No, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the experience, and uh, um, given all of the things in the news that have been about whistleblowing and reality winner and, and all the horror that's going on with that, I'm... I'm I'm guessing I'll be back again sometime soon. I'm um, sure you will. But. I, I was actually on a show myself. I was flown into New York City uh, just this past uh, just this past week and uh, was on a show called Big Think, uh, which is a, which is really a, a YouTube channel with about two million followers. Um, if you Google my name and Big Think, uh, you'll start seeing the first few clips that are getting released. And uh, I'll tell you, we talked about a range of topics. Um, it's video. Uh, and audio. This is the first time I've ever had my face powdered between segments, so I felt like a real celebrity. <laughs> uh, I also wondered if maybe my complexion needs work because they powdered me like three times, uh, probably because I was sweating so much. Yeah, uh, got to get rid of that shine. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was that was mostly uh, just because it was a warm room and partly because I'd been in uh, my local 
New York City tavern the night before with my family and uh, uh, may have had a few drinks. So uh, <laughs> there was some sweat and a lot of powder applied. But it was a good conversation. We talked uh, really about the endless wars. We talked about veterans issues and uh, we talked about the, the value of human life and the way Americans tend to value the lives of Caucasian Europeans far more than than Arab civilians yep. uh, or Afghan civilians. So it was a really good conversation. I recommend you all check it out. Uh, Big Think Experts is the show. And uh, yeah, if you Google my name there, they're starting to put out the first clips. It's, it's really a series of, uh, of segments and they... Uh, it, rather than a one-hour interview, uh, I was in there for about an hour and a half, but I think what the output will be is probably 10 or 12 uh, three- to four-minute segments. But so it's an interesting format, but I was glad to do it. And uh, so, yeah, we were both busy this week, and the world was busy, as we're going oh, yes. to see on these headlines today. And, I mean, uh, I think you're going to start us off today, but uh, what are we talking about first here, uh, Henry? Well, first thing out the gate today is uh, going back to Yemen. And a, um, this last month, Yemeni militia forces backed by uh, uh, UAE, the United Arab Emirates, uh, air and ground power, they began a campaign to retake the port of um, Hodeida, which is the main port of Yemen where 70% of their food and supplies come in. The campaign is focused on the air and sea ports um, with the U.S. and UAE-backed forces retaking the um, Hodeida airport earlier this month. The coalition has attempted to avoid civilian areas and has no immediate plans to retake the city center, given that it's a city of about 600,000 people. Um, but the port's importance to the Houthi resistance um, with trying to, they, they really think that by controlling the port, the Saudis and the Emirates can, can bring the Houthis to their knees in some way. Um, but it, it was interesting how hard the fighting was against the Houthis for the airport. Granted, they were able to keep air superiority there for quite a while, which really, really shows how long they can last. But as far as the port goes, that's kind of yet to be seen. Uh, Iona Craig of The Intercept, who we talked to before about Yemen, um, she dropped a couple new articles this last week, or excuse me, this last month, um, one of which discussed the UAE talking point that their government is saying that they're unable to control the Yemeni militias that they're supporting, despite paying them pretty substantial amounts of money for their participation. It's been reported that the militias um, will not attempt to take Hodeida without U.S. approval, despite the commanders on the ground saying that they have no control over their Yemeni militias. It, to me, it just seems like it's something they're trying to burn uh, both candles at the end. If the Yemeni militias do something that the troops there don't like or they can't acknowledge publicly, they say they don't have any control. If the militias do do something that they like, they're fine to wear it like a merit badge. And let's not forget that, you know, they may not be taking the city center and the fight for the airport may have been tough. But this is a starvation blockade yeah. that the Saudis and the UAE are attempting on Yemen. Because if you shut that port down, which brings in 70 percent of their food, and you take into account that Yemen is already the poorest Arab country and already reliant uh, to import most of its food, we're talking about an actual starvation blockade. This is some medieval tactics. And the United States backs the UAE and backs our Saudi counterparts. And so we are complicit in the starvation blockade that you're talking about. Absolutely, we are. There was also, uh, within the last month, a cholera treatment center 
there in Yemen was bombed, and I didn't see any acknowledgement about the destruction or trying to get extra supplies in so they could so they could deal with that. So I expect that the cholera epidemic there is going to get even worse. Yeah, the worst cholera epidemic, by the way, in Ameri- in not American, in world history, world history yep. in recorded history, the worst cholera epidemic. So we have starvation blockade, terror bombing from the skies, and the world's worst cholera epidemic, and no one gives a shit. Nope. Find me a 10-minute segment on Yemen and American news, and I'll give you $100, because you're not going to find it unless you go to public TV or unless you go to the BBC coming out of England. Yep. So going back to the fighters and their wh- whether or not they're under control by the um, UAE, um, there was I- Iona reported that the idea that they're not in control of the of the fighters there contradicts the scene she saw last month, which suggested strongly that the Yemeni fighters do not move without UAE orders. Soldiers told the Intercept that their salaries are also paid by the UAE with additional cash handouts for some resistance fighters arriving in plastic bags right on the front line. Um, More than a half dozen field and brigade commanders acknowledged taking their orders from the UAE, including from uh, Emirati senior officers stationed on the Red Sea coast. Um, The strength of the Emirati chain of command is important because the notion that the U.S. and the UAE don't really control these fighters give these countries plausible deniability. So now we're going to talk about, I think, the only politician in America right now that's actually talking about Yemen at all, and that's Ro Khanna. Um, Ro Khanna, and in May, he and a few other House members added an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, colloquially known as the NDAA, which is our, our big funding bill for the military, and it's done the year prior to it. The amendment would have limited funds for U.S. support efforts in Yemen, requiring an ongoing certification by the Secretary of State. It was shot down, of course. Um, Kana uh, also co-sponsored a second amendment to conduct an investigation into the CIA's use of secret prisons in Yemen, um, and well, uh, the CIA and the UAE. An AP investigation from 2017 showed 18 prisons within Yemen that are run by the UAE, with as many as 2,000 Yemenis having disappeared through their network. The House did vote yes to this particular amendment, but it's not clear whether or not the amendment will survive the upcoming House-Senate conference on the 2019 NDAA. Yeah, expect that it won't, by the way, because every single authorization that's attempted to limit our involvement in the massacre in Yemen has fallen on its face because the cowards in Congress always, always, always fold when it comes to Saudi money and UAE money and lobbying efforts. I mean, these war hawks, they, they don't care about the bombing of Yemeni civilians. No. They don't care. No. They say it's not us. Well, it is us, because it may not be our pilots, but it's our bombs, it's our intelligence, and, you know, it's, uh, it's our refuelers, mid-air refueling Saudi and at UAE jets that make this possible. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, but no, this will fail in Congress. I mean, I hate to be a pessimist. I hope it doesn't. But uh, expect it to be stricken from the NDAA and expect America to muddle on with the uh, inertia of what really amounts to war crimes perpetrated by the Saudis. Absolutely. Couldn't couldn't agree more with you. Um, And and back with the use of proxy forces here that by by our involvement, by America's involvement and the UAE's involvement, we, we continually get to create this distance between the people that are actually fighting on the ground 
and the people much further away who are making the decisions. And that level of plausible deniability, it allows them to disavow any act they can't publicly support while having military forces who are much more likely to commit war crimes and torture combatants that they capture. Um, and this is what, what exactly what you're talking about here, Danny, what makes the wars in Syria and Yemen that much scarier is that looking back on ISIS-held Iraq and how both ISIS swept through there and the Iraqi forces, the Iraqi government forces did, and all the war crimes that followed through with that, both sides. So by, by taking this leash off of these guys and sending them to do our, to do our nasty will, we're inviting more war crimes. We're just, just by the nature of the people doing it, not even necessarily the politics of it. it just, it's going to happen. And when this war is done, and it will get done eventually, Yemen will look like a very different place than it ever has. But as you said, our government has supported all of this. The, the, these deaths, they don't come home to the U.S., not in the news and not with a soldier in a box, nor do any crimes that are reported get much coverage. But for the people in the national security state, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, this situation is a win either way. If proxy forces secede, U.S. can slap its label on it and call it a win, regardless of war crimes, because they didn't commit the war crimes. And if the proxy forces fail, then we've lost nothing, and we can even disavow their actions, saying, no, we never really supported them from the beginning. It's a very fucked-up win-win situation for war hawks here in the U.S. Yeah, and because no American soldiers, or very few American soldiers, are coming home in boxes, it, it does not garner any attention, because... The fact of the matter is that your average American only values life if it is American, and specifically if it is Caucasian. If life that is lost is Arab, is brown, is Muslim, is foreign, it immediately has less worth and doesn't garner any media attention. And no. that's, that's the bottom line. If you don't think that race and nativism plays into this, then, then you're fooling yourself. Someone has to say it. And I'm going to upset people by saying this. Race is a factor. Religion is a factor. We do not have room in our collective souls to worry about the deaths of Arab innocents. We only seem to have uh, empathy for American or European, preferably Caucasian victims. No, it's, 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 it's a pattern that plays out over and over and over again, both over our history and over all of the wars in the post 9-11 era. You, you, can't, you can't look at any one action that we've taken following September 11th that doesn't have racial connotations to it. It just, it, it, you can't do it. There's, it's just not there. When we talk about how shameful all this is, it brings me to my first uh, article of the day, which is uh, from the AP, from the Associated Press, and it says, in a big win for the White House, Supreme Court upholds President Trump's travel ban. So we're back to the Muslim ban. That's not a Muslim ban, right? That's yeah. what we're told. It's not a Muslim ban. It's a travel ban. Venezuela's on the list now, so it can't be a Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will say this. Today I am ashamed. I'm ashamed of my court, my Supreme Court, and of my country. And I'm not afraid to say that. I fought and I sacrificed for this country, and I'm allowed to be ashamed. And I don't want to hear it from the, the, the faux patriots out there. So it was a five-to-four ruling. Like most rulings on the Supreme Court are, you got four liberals, four arch conservatives, and you got Anthony Kennedy, who's the swing vote. Sometimes he votes with the liberals, 
sometimes he votes with the conservatives. Uh, another way of saying that is sometimes he votes with the people who are sane, and sometimes he votes with the lunatics, okay? Because that's how far we've come. Uh, by the way, this five to four ruling that upheld President Trump's travel ban, which is a Muslim ban that we're not allowed to call a Muslim ban, this is going to get worse because Kennedy just announced his retirement. So as bad as Kennedy is, what comes next, guys, is going to be another Neil Gorsuch or worse. President Trump, if he is able to appoint uh, a Supreme Court justice, and he will, is likely to pick a wildly right-wing choice. If he does that, every ruling will be 5-4 in favor of the arch-conservatives, and, and that terrifies me. Uh, the, the president said in his statement about this, uh, this, this shameful, I think shameful travel ban, he said, today's Supreme Court ruling is a tremendous victory. He loves that word, tremendous. Tremendous victory for the American people and the Constitution. No, it's not. Uh, uh, for the American people, maybe. Is it? Is it really a win for the American people? What about for humanity? Because other lives besides American lives, other security besides American security matters. If this is a win for America, well, then it's a loss for humanity. What does that, what does that say about the United States? Yeah. And a win today is a tremendous victory for the Constitution? Well, I seem to remember there's something called the Establishment Clause of the Constitution that says that no religion should be favored over any other. And clearly, given the bald-faced intention of this to keep certain Muslims out of our country, it sounds a lot like it violates the Establishment Clause, which, of course, is what the dissenting justices, the four liberals, argued. Uh, this overturned lower court rulings. Three separate lower courts uh, have, have said that the travel bans, because there's been three, they've changed three times. He's had to lessen them each time. Uh, three times lower federal courts said that these were unconstitutional or violated federal law. Okay, so this is a major reversal. This is the Supreme Court saying, no, the other federal ju judges were all wrong at the circuit and appeals court levels. And the Supreme Court, in a five to four ruling, these unelected Supreme Court justices in a five to four ruling just said that America is a country that bans people based on religion. OK, but it gets even more interesting because there are five, there are seven countries in the list, five mainly Muslim countries. Iran, Syria, Yemen, Libya, and Somalia, and then two other countries, North Korea and Venezuela. This way we can say it's not a Muslim ban because there's no Muslims in Venezuela or in uh, North Korea. But here's the interesting thing about this ban. It's so arbitrary. Why those five countries? Well, because the United States doesn't like those five countries. Because if it was really about terrorism, if it was really about security, wouldn't we choose countries that had been involved in recent terror attacks on the United States? Because none of these five countries have provided the majority of people who have perpetrated terrorist attacks or attempted terrorist attacks on American soil. Let's look at who's not on the list. Pakistan. That's interesting. Pakistan is the headquarters of Al-Qaeda Central. Mm -hmm. But apparently anyone from Pakistan can come. Why? Well, the United States is in a tacit military alliance with Pakistan. What about Saudi Arabia? Lebanon, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates. You know why I mentioned those four countries? Well, this is where all 19 hijackers on 9-11 came from. They came from those four countries. In fact, 15 of them came from one of those countries, Saudi Arabia. Why then are those countries not on the list? This is the most arbitrary ruling. It, it, it is... Uh, it does not support American security. It is a... In my opinion, it is a nativist... Uh, 
it, it's, it's, it's a nativist bill that's meant to sort of uh, get the base riled up and excited. Because if it wasn't, we would certainly include the countries that had sent the hijackers on 9-11. Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Idris military dictatorship are allies of the United States. They sell oil to our allies and they back us in the Middle East. They buy our guns, they buy our missiles, they buy our planes. That's why they're not on the travel ban list, because they'd be upset if they were on the travel ban list. So, conveniently, they're left off the travel ban list, even though that's where most of the terrorists that have attacked the United States have happened to come from. So this, this is not only a Muslim ban, but it's also a Muslim ban that doesn't make any sense. It's completely arbitrary. Now, the plaintiffs who were trying to overturn the Muslim ban, the good guys we could call them, they argued that Trump's past campaign statements, specifically his statement that, uh, uh, that all Muslims uh, should be banned from the United States. Remember, he said, uh, Donald J. Trump is calling for a total mm -hmm. uh, halt to, uh, to, uh, of all Muslims uh, immigrating to the United States. He said that during the campaign. Okay? So this is what they argued. They said, look, if, if this is a Muslim ban. It does break the Establishment Clause because look at the statements of the president. Well, this very conservative court, this extremely partisan court said no it's not the court's job to do that and it doesn't matter what the president said it's his prerogative i thought we elected a president the supreme court seems to think we've elected what what amounts to a dictator saying that not only this president but any president by extension could uh take whatever measures they want when it comes to immigration so long as they use the word national security henry if you want to get away with any sort of crime or misdemeanor or just something unethical Here's how, you, here's how you do it. You say, I have to do this because of national security. Mm -hmm. I'm so sick of that phrase because it's been used to cover so many sins. Now, Sonia Sotomayor, one of the more sane and one of the more liberal justices on the court, she wrote and read out loud, which is rare, uh, uh, her own dissent, okay, for the four dissenting justices. She says, quote, the court's decision leaves undisturbed a policy that was first advertised openly and unequivocally as a quote, remember this isn't what he said, a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until he said, we figure out what the hell is going on. Very interesting statement. Uh, she compared this ruling, and I think she's right. She compared it to previous court decisions that were abhorrent, specifically the Supreme Court decision in 1944 that upheld the legality of interning Japanese Americans in camps without due process. And I think she's right. I think she's right that this is going to be remembered 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now as one of the more shameful decisions of our Supreme Court. She said, quote, history will not look kindly on the court's decision today, nor should it. Nancy Pelosi, not my favorite politician, she also, though, admirably slammed the decision. She said, quote, the court failed today, and so the public is needed more than ever. And that's how I want to leave it. That's right. The Republicans, in fact, the most conservative Republicans, dominate all three branches of government. They own this government. They control the Senate and the House. That's the legislative branch. They control the presidency. That's the executive branch. And apparently they control the court. And they'll have even more control of the court after Anthony Kennedy uh, steps down. The thing that Nancy Pelosi said that's most true and that I think we really need to harp on is that this is actually going to backfire. This travel ban is going to act as a recruiting tool for terrorists yep. because this is going to further the al-Qaeda-ISIS narrative that America is at war with Islam. 
America is not truly at war with Islam, but America sure appears to be at war with Islam when it does things like this travel ban. So, again, can we rely on our public institutions? Apparently not. This is time for citizen action. This is a time for lobbying your congressman. This is a time for getting in the streets. This is a time for being a citizen, okay? Because we cannot rely on these unelected justices to do the right thing. That much, Henry, is clear. And if you do one thing in the remainder of this calendar year, vote. In November, get your ballot out and vote. Wherever you are, wherever you live, all of it's important. Everything that's going to be on there is going to affect our country or where, where you live in some way. And, yeah, it, it's, it's time for a blue wave and vote. Get out there yeah. and vote. Yeah, vote for everything, right? Vote for Congress, but vote for the dog catcher, okay? Vote yep. down the line. Vote on your local pol political issues. This needs to be a way of election, like you said. We're not going to tell you how to vote. We just want you to vote. We want you to inform yourself. We want you to be a citizen, an informed citizen, and we want you to get out there and vote. Let's see a massive turnout this year, because if there's a massive turnout, I have a feeling there's going to be some, some major significant changes in who controls the Congress. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, and that's our one... That's our one way to be actually be able to affect this. The Supreme Court is done for the next what decade or so, and the presidency is done for at least the next two years because we ain't impeaching the guy. So that's it. It's Congress. Congress is our only is the only way that any relief of any of this shit is going to happen. Let me say one more quick thing about American government. We love to say we're such a democracy, but you know what? The Congress is the only branch that's truly democratic anymore. It's the only one where the people can really have their say. Let me make an argument for that. President Trump didn't even receive the majority of votes. Nope. He got three million less votes than Hillary Clinton. So this is an undemocratic, non-majoritarian, non-egalitarian election. Therefore, the president was chosen by a minority of Americans. And then he gets to a point on his own justice to the Supreme Court, who are also unelected. So two out of three branches of our government are not based on clear democratic majoritarian principles. So long as that's the case, the only thing citizens can do is vote and turn to Congress, because that's our best bet. Do I trust Congress? No. Do I think they're doing a good job? No, they're a disgrace. But that's our one opportunity to influence American politics in a democratic fashion. And if we don't use it, then... Who knows what we're going to look like in 10 years, 20 years. It's, it, and it's on us. Yeah. It's on us. It's on all of us. Yeah. So my next headline today um, is from Ian Berman at Mint Press News. And I'm sure almost everybody listening to this right now knows that in the last few days, reality winner was sentenced to 63 months um, on an espionage act charge. Um, she pled guilty of one federal count of willful ret retention and transmission of national defense information. So prior to this, she's, she'd been, she's, well, she's still being held without bail, um, despite most former whistleblowers um, getting bail under the Obama administration. She is the first charged whistleblower under the Trump administration. Um, you have a you know fe fellow like Paul Manafort that got to vacation in the Hamptons while she was still in jail. Um, so I got, I've been asked by a bunch of people, one of the fellows on, on Fault Lines asked me this too, is that why, 
why why plea why was that chosen for this and and the reality is is it's about the espionage act when someone's charged under the espionage act whatever they happen to have done if they're whistleblowing if they gave something to somebody who wasn't supposed to have it that they're not allowed to make any kind of mitigating statements in court to defend themselves. They, they, they get no chance. Reality had no opportunity in any of these proceedings to stand up and declare why it was that she chose to do this. And therein lies the reason, is that within the Espionage Act, if they charge people, it's usually just you make a plea. Otherwise, you're going to court. It's a very simple statutory thought for them to decide, and, and, and that's it. I'm not, I don't think it's constitutional. I don't think it's right in the least, but that is the law the way it is now. So, Ian, he pointed out s several points on some of the recent uh, reporting from The Intercept on this story. And he mentioned uh, an idea that I, I hadn't thought about, but it, it's, it's, it's definitely worth considering that should The Intercept be analyzing their own choices in reporting and publishing on how they dealt with reality winner does you know and, and to me that there's no there's no authority in that there's no authenticity in an organization writing about itself because how do you actually get perspective on what's happening so going back to reality being being charged um it's important to point out that several high profile leakers leaked information and did escape punishment or got much less punishment both hillary clinton and general petraeus uh, their leaks were not small. They were, uh, Clinton obviously was never charged, and Petraeus only received a, a misdemeanor charge and a $100,000 fine. Um, while somebody in reality's shoes, being at the bottom of the, of the chain of command, could never have escaped punishment so much. So um, it seems that it matters how high up the chain of command someone sits as to whether leaks even matter. So that's. And, and what side they're on. I mean, to a certain yeah. extent. I mean, General yeah. Petraeus. You know, General Petraeus was uh, was a CIA director. Okay, so he he was at the top of the chain, and he was a widely respected war hero. And uh, uh, of course, he was going to receive bail and not serve a single day. Uh, it, it, it's a foregone conclusion. But if you are a, a liberal activist, if you're someone of the left, if you're someone who's anti-war, well, then you're considered a threat. And the Espionage Act, mind you, that these people are being uh, prosecuted under. And don't get me wrong, President Obama. He prosecuted more people with the Espionage Act than any president before him. So this is not just a Trump problem. But no, 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 the no. Espionage Act is from 1917. It is 101 years old. It is from a time of hysteria surrounding the First World War. The Espionage Act was used to like close down newspapers and to, uh, and to deport aliens who were seen as being pro-German during the war. And a lot of really nefarious things were done with this Espionage Act. It's still on the books, folks. We need to take another hard look at the Espionage Act itself. Calling what Reality Winter did espionage is is just a, a complete misuse of the English language. Yep. And I, it, it's look, we can argue about whether what she, what she did was right or wrong. We could have that argument, but to call it espionage is going a step too far. Espionage is selling secrets to the Russians. Okay, this is not what happened. If you believe that by leaking something, you're doing a service to the public, that's not the same thing as espionage so we got more careful with our terms uh it's required of us as as you know literate english speakers to be more precise yeah with the with the court turning turning full conservative i i, I don't see that ever getting well not ever but not in the next 20 30 years there's no way that it's going to get changed or overturned
No chance. No. That's the sad thing, man, is that when, when only one-third of the three branches of American government is truly democratic, uh, mistakes or bad decisions, they last. Yep. You know, like we said with the Supreme Court. Sometimes, it, look, Neil Gorsuch is young. That dude could be on the court for 30 more years. Yep. The next guy that President Trump puts on the court to replace Kennedy, he might serve for 30 or 40 years. And you know what? RBG, the OG, the original gangster of liberals, mm-hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she can only last for so long. Yeah. Now, because she's an American hero, she'll probably die wearing her robe and sitting at that at, at that desk. Yeah, okay? probably. Because she knows she knows that if she retires, okay, then then something worse is coming. So poor poor Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't get a retirement because she has to protect her country or at least her values and how she sees the country. Um, this is really dangerous. We, you know, you talk to whistleblowers on the Fault Line show. We've talked about it a lot on this show. I always go back to the same mantra, which is that we have to balance security, which is a real concern, with whether or not there was any other outlet for the American people to learn what these people leaked. If there was no outlet for the American people to have oversight over these programs, whether it be the Snowden leaks, the Chelsea Manning leaks, or the Reality Winner leaks, uh, we got to balance those two things, and we got to look at them hard. And I'm not convinced that, that, that I trust the American government or at least trust certain aspects of the American government to provide their own oversight. Uh, it really worries me when government watches itself because that's not how it's supposed to be. Okay? Uh, the media, uh, congressional institutions and subcommittees, uh, and the public to a certain extent are supposed to be the ones that, uh, that regulate and that provide oversight for these programs. The national security state, the obsession with clearance, the obsession with secrecy, is not good for transparency in a purported, ostensible republic such as ours. Absolutely, no, it it it, it it's terrifying. The amount of stuff that is kept and that that we just don't hear about. We just it's just it's either redacted somewhere or like when my my discussion with Kagan talking about things becoming classified that didn't need to be classified. And so it's just that much harder for simple information to make it to, to people looking for it. Um, while I'm thinking about it, I did want to give a congratulations to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who won uh, the primary in uh, New York City's 14th district yesterday. Um, in thinking about that, on Twitter yesterday, Will, uh, Will Griffin from the Peace Report um, pointed out that her platform changed between just before the primary to after. And the change was she removed, anti, or, well, someone removed anti-war. If you go to <laughs> the archives of her page, you know, 10 days ago, 15 days ago, it had like a huge paragraph about the military-industrial complex, about n- not putting money into places that just per- perpetuate war. And after she won, it's gone. So I don't know if that was an oversight. I'm guessing that it wasn't. But Will saw that, and he went to town, and absolutely, it, 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 that needs to be talked about. You know, the, the, the whole principles getting whittled off people that they, when, they, we come into op- when people come into office, they're pretty raw, pretty new, and over time, lobbyists and other bullshit, and they just, it, it becomes too hard. Sorry, yeah, and, uh, you still have to uh, be yeah, a leader. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I just listened to her on Intercepted. I'm sure you probably listened to the same show. Um, She's a really interesting uh, woman. She's uh, not afraid to use words like uh, democratic socialism. Mm-hmm. She certainly represents the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, which, yep. of course, 
personally I am uh, favorable to. Um, it is disturbing that the anti-war platform came away. I'm glad she won because the guy that she was running against, his name escapes me, was really an old Democratic machine guy. You know, Joe a Crowley. Smoke-filled, yeah, a smoke-filled room kind of insider who we, we, we could never count on to be uh, truly progressive. Uh, I, I, I definitely congratulate on her win. I enjoyed listening to her interview uh, with The Intercept. But, uh, but hey, you know, I hope she brings the anti-war platform back in because that might be perhaps the most important issue facing us that almost no one is talking about, okay? Because yep. uh, healthcare, people talk about, and immigration, people talk about, but but very few people are talking about our wars. There was this shocking picture that I just saw, I think it was in a New York Times article, um, where the Pentagon was giving a brief on the war in Afghanistan, like an update, and the picture shows the, uh, the, the room where all the reporters are supposed to sit, and there's like 50 chairs, and there are four reporters yep, in the room that, yeah. listening to this general talk. And it just shows that no one cares about these wars. Americans have stopped caring. They've got they, – they, they're just tired of war, and they don't even want to know about it anymore. But that is the time when citizen action is required. Yep. And so we, we've got to focus on that, and we need as many progressive voices uh, in the House who are willing to question the warfare today. And I hope she will be one of those, and uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that she will be. No. Uh even even for people that it's it's gotten to the point where the war the war and the information about it is so nebulous that you just you just don't care remember that every dollar that we spend on a missile a rifle a bullet whatever it is is a dollar that doesn't go to a kid at a school it's a dollar that yep. doesn't go to infrastructure rebuilding which our country desperately needs it doesn't go to normal basic human things and what it does go to is perpetuating the warfare state and perpetuating the empire of bases that the United States military currently consists of. And that brings me to my second and, and our last article for the day, which uh, the title is, Should the U.S. Permanently Station More Troops in Europe? New U.S. Army Europe Chief Weighs In. So this was an interesting article. Um, basically... In the National Defense Authorization Act, there is um, th- there's something that came out of the Senate Armed Services Committee in the authorization bill that uh, was a request for a review to examine whether the rotational presence of American armored brigades in Europe is enough or whether we need to restation a new armored brigade in Europe. So th- this gets back to the Russia debate. How big of a threat is Russia, right? Currently in Europe, there are two brigade-sized elements station there. There's a 2nd Cavalry Regiment, which is a striker-based, medium, armored platform organization, and then there's the 173rd Airborne Brigade, which is in Italy, which is a light infantry unit. In addition to those two brigade-sized units, the United States has been deploying into Europe on a rotational basis armored brigade combat teams, okay, so heavy tanks and Bradleys, and they've been doing this for several years. My question is whether or not this is provocative to the Russians rotating more tanks into Europe that are clearly and openly said to be there to deter Russia. I mean, imagine the reverse. What if Russia started rotating armored tank brigades to Mexico or Venezuela or Cuba? The United States would probably actually go to war. Yep. And yet Russia is just supposed to swallow it. I'm no fan of the Russians. Well, I'm, I, I like the Russian people. I'm no fan of the Russian government. I'm no fl- fan of Vladimir Putin. He's, a, he's an autocrat, okay? And he's dangerous. But he's not that dangerous. No. And he's not crazy, okay? Um, you know, 
Chris Cavoli, who is the lieutenant general in charge of U.S. Army Europe, he was actually pretty diplomatic about this, okay? He didn't come out and say we definitely need more armored brigades in Europe, okay? He was very diplomatic, which is why he's probably a general, because he knows how to, uh, to do that, uh, to kind of parse his words. He said the first thing when we, when we discuss whether we should have a new brigade, the first thing is it depends on what we think of the imminence of the threat that can be countered with a brigade combat team. This is an important point. Um, nothing is my answer to that, okay? Uh, two things. Number one, the threat from Russia, I do not believe, is imminent. Okay, I think the evidence shows that Russia has no intention to attack or conquer Western Europe, nor do they have the capacity. No. The second thing is, even if they did attempt a massive invasion, one armored brigade is not able to stop that. So General Cavoli really answered his own question. He said, we have to take into account the imminence of the threat and whether it can be countered by a brigade combat team. Answer, not an imminent threat and can't be stopped by a brigade combat team. So what are we really talking about here? I want to end with this. Here's the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room in all these discussions is Russian weakness. Not Russian strength, Russian weakness. Yes, Russia has thousands of nuclear weapons. No, Russia has no intent to end the world by using them. Yes, Russia has a relatively powerful military, one of the top five in the world. No, Russia's military is nowhere near on par with America's military. Let's look at a few points. Russia economically is wildly dependent on natural grass reserves and is essentially a petrostate. Its economy is weak and it is vulnerable. Compared to NATO, it is a tiny economy, about the size of Italy or Spain's economy. Okay, that's the GDP, GDP facts. Okay, the European Union towers over Russia economically. Second, Russia has military limitations. Specifically, it has an inability to project power overseas. It lacks the air and sea lift to do what America does, which is place soldiers anywhere in the world at any time. Russia lacks that ability, okay? It is a ground-based force that would quickly uh, outrun its logistical supply lines. And remember, Russia spends about one-eighth as much as the United States on defense. One-eighth. Okay? So let's keep that in mind before we begin the alarmism of we need to send the army back to Europe. Another thing that's important is there is plenty of capability for the European Union and for the European portion of NATO to defend itself. Here I agree with Donald Trump, or at least what Donald Trump said on the campaign trail. The security umbrella that the United States provides for Europe is a welfare check. Okay? These people have plenty of money that they could be investing in their own militaries. If they truly believed that Russia was an existential threat to, say, German security, Germany would stop spending 1.8% of its GDP on the military and would increase that number because Germany's economy towers over Russia's economy. So if, if they really think it's a threat, arm yourselves. We'll help you if there's an invasion. We're allies. Arm yourselves. We no longer need to provide the blank welfare check to the European economies of placing more American soldiers overseas in provocative maneuvers that are only to are only likely to increase the threat of war with Russia. Okay? Let's be smart. None of this means that Danny likes Vladimir Putin. None of this means that Danny doesn't believe in the NATO alliance. Danny thinks that Putin's a monster and the NATO alliance is probably worth being in. But what I don't believe is that we should be writing blank checks to the Europeans. I do not believe that putting more American armored brigades in Poland, who just asked for some, or in Estonia or Latvia is anything but provocative to the Russians. I think that Russia lacks the capacity or the intent to invade Western Europe. Remember that. They lack the capacity and they lack the intent to invade Western or even Eastern Europe. And that's what I believe. 
I think this is alarmism. I think it's hysteria. And I think it only feeds the military industrial complex and the warfare state. It's interesting. While you were, you were mentioning that I was, it, it seems that the whole world relies on us to kill people for them in one way or another, the middle East, uh, Asia with, with our, our bases in Japan and other places, Australia, Europe, all of Europe, they count on us being the big guy with the big stick, like Teddy Roosevelt. You were, well, you know, it's walk stoffling carry a big stick. But why is it we can't do any self-reflection on that idea that we're we we're, we're simply pushing the whole world to fight more, both by our presence and by our actions? It, totally agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is this is disturbing, folks. Um, Russia and the United States, uh, between them, control the vast, vast majority of all the nuclear weapons on the planet. And the last thing we need is a ground war that could quickly escalate into a nuclear war between America and Russia. This is a time for civility. This is a time for diplomacy and for creativity and for prudent strategy. This is not a time for saber-rattling, which is what this administration so far appears to be um, best at. I do hope, cautiously— that President Donald Trump is actually going to be smart on this issue because he has called on NATO to pick up some of their own defense, and he has said that war with Russia would be a nightmare. So Trump, at least Trump on the campaign trail on this issue, made a lot of sense to me. And, uh, and I hope on this that he listens to his own advice and goes by his own instincts. God help us. But in this instance, I think his instincts are probably right. Um, the last thing we need is a war with Russia. That could potentially destroy the planet. Yep, that's it. And, and for what other than people's filling, filling certain people's pockets? Oh, yeah. The only winners are like Northrop Grumman and Honeywell. Yep. Um, mankind great, loses, great but beyond. massive, massive corporations win in their stockholders. But uh, guess what? Most Americans don't own a single share of stock. Okay. Most Americans will live paycheck to paycheck. So we're not winning when Northrop Grumman wins. When no. Boeing wins, we lose. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read, and remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.